Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. What kind of a show are you guys putting on here today? You're not interested in art? No. No, look, we're going to do this thing. We're going to have a conversation. From Chicago, this is Film Spotting. I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. Okay, let's call the cops. I did. They're 14 minutes away. What? 14 minutes? Okay, 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 okay. Jason, give me the bat. So based on that clip anyway, Jordan Peele's follow-up to Get Out appears to be get off my lawn. Whatever Jordan Peele is selling, I'm buying. Agreed. That was Winston Duke and Lupita Nyong'o in a clip from Us, which opens wide this weekend. We've got a review. Plus, film spotting madness, sweet 16 results, and the final film in our John Cassavetes marathon, 1977's opening night. It's all ahead. Adam, give me the bat. On film spotting. Welcome to Film Spotting, the show that made you choose between Before Sunset and Mulholland Drive. I don't think we want that to be our claim to fame. <laughs> we don't. Film Spotting Madness, our annual 64 film March Madness style tourney, continues this week with the announcement of our Elite Eight matchups. Plus, we conclude our four film John Cassavetes Marathon with 1977's opening night, and we'll also share our Cassavetes Marathon awards. Jenna Rollins has to be eagerly awaiting the news of which film she'll get the Best Actress trophy for. Yeah, I'm sure she needs that affirmation. Before that, Adam and I managed to go into Us mostly blind. Should we have been more prepared for what Jordan Peele's horror film had in store for us? They look exactly like us. They think like us. They know where we are. We need to move and keep moving. They won't stop until they kill us. And we kill them. Josh, most of the time we come straight from a screening to the studio to record a review. We don't really need to point out to the audience that it's a still processing review. We could probably get away with it and our listeners would believe that we had been thinking about the movie for a day or two. But I don't remember the last time I truly felt regret <laughs> that we had to record under these circumstances and couldn't devote more time to a movie because us 
is a movie that requires some processing. It wasn't Captain Marvel? No. You didn't you didn't need an extra day for that. Probably huh? not. Yeah. I could use a little more time. A little but more time. Let's just do it. Yeah, we don't let's have just the do time. It. And we are gonna point out right off the top here that this might be one of the shorter film spotting reviews ever because it's not just a movie that could use a little bit of spoiler talk. I don't really think you can talk about the film much at all beyond its surface pleasures or disappointments without getting into spoiler talk. So we will be very clear about it. At some point, we will transition into full-blown spoilers. Hopefully, you will have seen the movie or have time to see it and can come back to the review. We'll make sure for our radio listeners, they aren't bombarded with a bunch of spoiler talk they don't want to hear. They'll have to go to filmspotting.net or to iTunes and download the podcast if they are curious to hear more. Again, we will give you plenty of warning. A little bit of background on the movie, and we did mention that we went into the movie totally blind. I think we both saw the teaser trailer, which Mm -hmm. didn't reveal too much. And I do have the plot synopsis in front of me, and I think that gives us a starting point here. Lupita Nyong'o is Adelaide. She has two kids and a husband, played by Winston Duke. She went through a traumatic experience as a young girl, maybe about the same age as her son, In the film, the daughter is a little bit older, and we see that event play out at the very beginning of the film, and it reasserts itself in her mind as she goes on vacation with her family and happens to visit the same town and beach where the event occurred. And at some point, there is a home invasion situation that involves four people who seem to look just like the four members of the family in question. Does that cover it? Yeah, and I think, as you said, the two of us only saw that teaser All of those things were in it. So I think we're on safe ground there. Okay. This is pretty well known unless you did even a firmer job than we did of not trying to learn anything about us. Right. And I, we probably for the few minutes ahead, we will not proceed much further than those basic details. We won't. So my question for you. Yes. (laughs) As we try to get into this film, as we said, without revealing too much. We sat down and happened to find seats at our screening right next to our next picture show colleagues, Keith Phipps and Scott Tobias. And at one point, Keith turned to you just a few minutes before the movie started. And I think he asked, how scary is this going to be? Genuine question. Just wanting your thoughts on whether or not this is a movie where writer-director Jordan Peele was really going to be pushing the thrills and the chills and trying to really frighten us. And the conversation segued a little bit into one about how his previous film, Get Out, had some of those same horror and gore elements to it, but of course had bigger matters on its mind. So the question became, would this film behave similarly? I guess my question for you is, does Jordan Peele here have something on his mind beyond horror or are the thematics or any satirical elements like we saw in Get Out completely secondary to the craft. And on those terms alone, does this movie work or fail? Yeah. Well, if we go back real quickly to get out, you know, that was thought of or described as a horror comedy simply because of Peel's background. And uh, I, I just looked up my review of Get Out to see how I characterized it. And I've got the line in there that says, people are describing this as a horror comedy, but it's pure terror. And I think that is the case with us. First and foremost, yeah. this is terrifying. Now, in Get Out, I would say uh, the bigger matters, as you describe them, are very much at the forefront. They're in the of course they're in the setup. Raises they're in the, the conversation literally exactly. from the opening scene. So us is a little craftier, 
But I do think, and we'll save this for spoilers, it is getting at something. I do too. I'm not entirely sure <laughs> of what I think. Right. So we'll work that out together. Hopefully. Um, and maybe that is, is that better or worse? I don't think it matters. It's just a little bit different of an approach, whereas we know what we're supposed to be thinking about at the beginning in Get Out. In us, we know we're supposed to be scared out of our minds mm-hmm. because we are fairly quickly. Yes. And then the shock, as we start to process what's going on, maybe we can find spaces here or there. Maybe the movie provides us a few clues here or there to start thinking about is there a metaphor at work here? Is there something that, you know, in my mind as a fandom horror, I'm always looking for that other level mm-hmm. that gives it the craft of horror is one reason I love the genre. Yes. And us has a ton of craft. I'll answer your question right away on that as well. Absolutely. There's a ton of craft here. Um, but I do think there's more going on. And so I think that puts it in get out territory. I mean, it's yeah. again, you know, we, we don't have to always hold these movies up against each other, but that was such a phenomenon, such a surprise from Jordan Peele. You know, there maybe there is some concern or wondering, is he going to be able to do it again? I don't think he's done exactly it, but he's done something that is similar, just as invigorating, just as troubling. And I like to think in these few minutes I've been out of it just as insightful. Uh, I just got to dig that out a little more. Yeah, I do as well. And hopefully we will get into that. And maybe with the help of some listeners, we will excavate this film together. There is one key difference among many differences, but there's one key difference in terms of how invigorating, to use your word, this film is compared to Get Out. And I will just remain cryptic for now and come back to that during spoilers. But I'm curious to see how it will overall play with audiences versus something like Get Out. And that ties back to kind of what I'm hinting at here. But in terms of the craft, it's one of those films that from the very beginning forces you to pay attention. And it does it in a few different ways. And when a film can do that, when you are on alert like that, forget the horror part, it gets scary pretty quickly. And I'll explain more what I mean by scary, but it's just one of those films that has you on edge a little bit. And it's because early on, we get a bunch of, for lack of a better word, non sequiturs. And whereas that sometimes in a film could be a little bit distracting because you're just scratching your head. You recognize pretty quickly that they aren't non sequiturs at all, that these things that seem like maybe they're diversions or you're not sure what their purpose is, they have a purpose. Mm-hmm. And that's because you trust Peel and the way he forces you to pay attention to those moments, you know or have a strong inkling that they're going to come back into play. And then fairly quickly, they do. Some of those elements start to reveal themselves. So you know that From early on in this film, you have to be paying attention that nothing is going to be wasted in this movie. There's no information that's going to be presented that isn't going to factor in somehow. And that is a stimulating experience at the theater. Also, from very early on, our characters, we're seeing the world through their eyes. Yes. There's this great use of point of view. Similarly, actually, in some instances in Get Out, where we see characters observing and the camera is moving so slowly taking in these scenes and allowing us to watch the characters view the world, that's another way that we're on alert because we're processing the world through their eyes. Now, once you add in the terror element, and I agree with you that it's terrifying, that's when the movie makes you even more alert and the heart rate goes up. I was aware of how my heart was pounding throughout (laughs) this film. Without there being any real jump scares or moments that really frighten you, it's just a constant state of terror. And I think that's because 
Peel does something else that's really smart here, which is he taps into very common universal fears right from the beginning. <laughs> nothing terrifies me more than the thought of losing my child. I've joked about it before, but I don't even like going to museums. My kids are older now, but going to museums or any kind of public place where kids can get lost, the beach, yeah, the beach is terrifying. The beach isn't fun in the summer. And beyond that, there's then the fear of, can you protect your family? If you were ever tested in a way that this family, that this husband played wonderfully by Winston Duke is tested and the way Lupita Nyong'o as a mother is tested, could you be up to that challenge? And even right from the beginning, there's this suggestion that there might be nefarious government involvement in our lives. And we may not be conspiracy theorists, Josh, or people who get too hung up on that stuff, but that doesn't mean we don't occasionally get caught up in a story or a certain narrative and feel like it might explain something that seems unexplainable. And Peel knows that. He knows his audience is going to tap into that right away. Well, there are a couple of things in terms of craft that are going on that add to this low hum of unease that you're right, does exist for the first probably third of the movie before we meet this other doppelganger family that becomes instrumental in the film. Um, we understand right away that Lupita Nyong'o's character is low-level distress here. Like, it's she smiles at times, she has fun with her family, but there's always something nagging at mm -hmm. her. And we can sense that. And it goes back to that prologue of when she was young. And the camera work there, at this point, she's played by Madison Curry. And this girl, I even jotted my notes, this girl's a people watcher. And it's in her face, the way she's always yes. looking, turning her head. But then the camera gives us that point of view you mentioned. And it, too, is taking in. They're on a boardwalk at this point at night with her parents. And the camera is taking in everyone they pass. She's very observant. Mm -hmm. it's, it's as if she's, um, she's trying to pick up the social cues going yes. on among the people she sees. And we notice that. So we're watching them Absolutely. and trying to find clues as well. So that's crucial. Then when we jump forward to Adelaide as an adult, she has the same watchfulness. And a lot of times mm -hmm. it's, as you mentioned, attuned to her children. She's very careful about where her children are, especially her younger son, Jason, played by Evan Alex. And here's where the sound design comes into play. There are so many times yes. where we are suddenly put right inside Adelaide's head because there's conversation that's being distorted. There's music that comes in or out. Repetitive sounds yes. coming off frame. Just haunting her. Mm -hmm. And these little touches that do put us there and we understand what she's distressed about. We understand early on that she hasn't shared with her family Mbaku, by the way, we should mention Winston Duke here in case people don't recognize the name, Mbaku yeah. from Black Panther. Very different here. Very funny. She hasn't even told her husband, Gabe, about this event in her past. Right. And so there is a lot of interesting family dynamics at play, some humor, some tension right at the beginning. Uh, this isn't, these aren't just victims that Peel is setting up for us to worry about on that level. But we get to know this family very well before it all starts going down. And then when it does, yes, it is terrifying. I would say I'm always a little skeptical about home invasion slash child endangerment movies because you're right. Those are easy buttons easy. to push. Yep. Um, I would say that the movie moves beyond that, let's just yes. say, the home invasion element. And also the child endangerment, it doesn't move beyond that, but it uses it in a a crucially thematic way, I think, that makes it, um, you know, 
I can give the film a pass for pushing it yeah. that far, I guess. Yeah. Um, and then the other thing that this film has that we can talk about in before we get into spoilers, I think, are the performances. Mention yes. Winston Duke, who brings a lot of humor to that first third that's really necessary um, to kind of deflate that tension here and there. And also give it give us a sense of, you know, who this guy is and how he relates to his family members. Yep. Nyong'o. I mean, this She's is... Good. <laughs> She's well, good, right? <laughs> and what a role to have yeah. where I don't think it's spoiling things to say that these actors, this family of four, each play their doppelgangers mm-hmm. as well. And we did, a number of years ago, our top five terrifying characters list. I am going to have to bump someone off that list and move up Nyong'o's Red. That's Red. the name given As name, the character. I noticed that in the credits at the end of the film. You can see it on IMDb. They all have names. Yes. Which is obviously by design. Yes. And it is a performance of movement, of altering her voice, though perhaps there's some you know vocal effects going on there as well. She has a way of Maybe. speaking. Um, just a way of tilting her head, a way ballet comes into play in the mm-hmm. film. We learn that Adelaide was a ballet dancer when she was younger. And that is how Red moves as a ballet dancer who's has that gracefulness in her somehow, but also it's almost like at some point she's had her limbs broken. And I'm not giving anything away there. It's no. just that's the movement she gets. It's so disturbing how this figure moves, never mind what she's orchestrating against this family or trying to make happen or the actual acts of violence, which there's a ton of violence Mm -hmm. in here, that we see. What's scarier is when she's making slight, small movements and they're just off kilter in a way that it's it's really horrifying. Yeah, it is. But I think that it's also terrifying in the same way that Nyong'o as Adelaide is so fascinating as a character, which is there is some other element or something it seems going on in her mind behind everything we're seeing. And that's what I love about the performance. And I think it gets back to this idea of the point of view and observation in that she is still always a watcher. And so she's someone who even in these heightened, scary moments, it's almost more bewilderment. And there's a sense that she's watching something play out that almost was supposed to play out. And so she's curious. There's this burning curiosity behind Nyong'o's performance, behind those eyes specifically. But at the same time, you do get all the fear. You get that sense of her trying to protect her kids in particular. And you also see, amidst all this chaos and horror, this compassion that comes through in her character. So that's all part of that performance. Now, the red character, you still get that same sense of curiosity. It's not just that she's a monster who's there to wreak havoc. She is, right from the moment we meet her, someone who seems as observant and as curious as Adelaide, which makes us more invested in her and this entire narrative than if she was just a terrorizer. Yeah, it's this isn't like a Jekyll and Hyde performance. It's a no. it's a mirror performance yeah. where you're get, you're seeing the same elements refracted in a disturbing and and as I said a broken way. Yeah. And it's funny. You said this, but it is genuinely a funny movie. I think there are probably times where as an audience, we probably could have lightened up a little bit because we were all collectively so terrified. There are moments that probably passed where we could have responded a little bit more vocally, but that comes through. The humor undeniably comes through in this film in the same way it does in Get Out. Yeah, I think, you know, I'm trying to remember in Get Out, my recollection is that 
as things got more intense and more horrific in that film, the laughs subsided. But sure. I don't know if that was the case. Yeah, maybe not. I think if I watched it again, I think I've seen it twice, maybe three times, I'd realize that the jokes were embedded in there at moments to work as that release valve, you know, that they often yeah. can. Yes, that's the... Same case here. I can think of a few confrontations uh, mm-hmm. involving, again, Gabe, the husband, that do use humor. And uh, I think it's pretty effective. I do too. Um, for a while, I was wondering, you know, is is the is the violence as a gag getting a little out of place here? Because there's a bit of that. There is. There's some of that. But again, as we'll get into, if you really take seriously uh, the fact that these people are in violent confrontations with shadows of themselves. Yes. I think that use of violence makes sense. It generates a different response. I absolutely agree. And I would say too, that the reason the humor is so effective here and the reason why it actually makes sense and doesn't just feel sort of like a convenient movie construct is that it's always born out of family dynamics. Yeah. Or almost always born out of these family dynamics. We're laughing at things we know from their relationship. We're laughing at some of their inside jokes. And that also makes it, as I said, more believable. It just makes it overall more authentic. And we aren't then removed from them simply as characters who are now trying to protect themselves and now sort of out for revenge or yeah. getting their, their vengeance on these characters. It's it's more than that. A perfect example of that is there's one moment after a lot of violence has occurred. The brother and sister have been through a lot. Yes. And they're both moving. Let's just say they're moving together to take on another confrontation. And she still pauses when he chooses a weapon, let's say, yep. to give him an, a little bit of an eye roll. Yes. So it's like the brother-sister dynamic, even though it you It doesn't think change even in that. Even in that all. scenario. So, so I, I love moments the moment like that. and it's funny. Okay. So I think we did a pretty decent job of talking about this movie in some detail without actually really getting into the meat of it. And I think this is a good time to then segue into legitimate spoiler talk. We'll go ahead and stop here for our radio listeners. Again, if you want to hear this part of the show, you can find us at filmspotting.net or wherever you get your podcasts. Now, maybe here Sam can even play a little music, Josh, to help just provide a break between the non-spoiler and the spoiler. So here it is. Spoiler talk. We're going to absolutely get into all the details about the ending of this film, the middle of this film, what we make of it, what we're not sure we make of it. Again, in our defense, we saw it about 20 minutes ago. (laughs) This is true. So I suggested that there is one perhaps key difference in how people respond to this film versus Get Out. And this is a pretty well-known story at this point that Get Out originally did not end so happily. Right. And Jordan Peele decided audiences needed that release, and the movie ends triumphantly. The bad people get their comeuppance, the good people survive and move on with their now probably fairly shattered lives, but nonetheless move on. I feel as if there is a sense, at least on first glance, that this is a film, Us, that does not end so triumphantly, that it will leave audiences not only scratching their heads a little bit, Mm -hmm. but it will leave them feeling let down. It will leave them feeling even perhaps like the bad guys, so to speak, won. 
What yeah, do you think? I think? And what do you make of the ending? So I think, I love it. I think it's brilliant. I do, I can see that there are open questions. Mm-hmm. The primary one being, and we should probably try to briefly lay out oh, yeah. exactly what happens here. Okay. Uh, because the primary question is, what's going to happen now with all these people in these red jumpsuits lined up around America who have just murdered most of America? Yes. Okay. So- if for some reason you're listening to this and haven't seen the movie, but just want to... <laughs> no, there's no way. Please tell me. <laughs> Basically, it turns out that there are doppelgangers everywhere. They've arisen from underground, mm-hmm. and we can get into where they came from. But for our purposes, that's the scenario. Well, the movie even skims over it. It's, yeah. It, it just us, asks you to kind of says, buy that... Yeah, pretty much. Pretty they much. were created in underground yes. labs. So they have, they have escaped and are out to pursue and kill their above-ground counterparts. Yes. The people who have lived these actual, real, nice lives, Mm -hmm. whereas they have been stuck underground, not seen daylight, and forced to eat raw rabbits. We are told, and we actually see that at one point. So for reasons I'm not sure I entirely understand, part of their uprising involves, because they were inspired by Hands Across America in 1986. Yes. they're, They're all going to join hands and be in a line. Right, but let's be like clear. Like Hands Across America. They were inspired by Hands Across America in 1986 because young Adelaide yes. saw the commercial on TV, yes. which is what we see at the beginning of the film, and was aware of it and is different than all of them and taught them about Hands Across America. Correct. All part of her master plan. Correct. Yeah. And you're saying young Adelaide, which some people might think is a mistake, but no, because the final twist is That's that. That's the twist. Young Adelaide went into this fun house with mirrors, encountered her shadow self who had escaped from underground. And for most of the movie, we think, oh, she saw her, freaked out, forgot about it, and now she's re-encountering. Traumatized by it, but is now seeing the doppelganger. Yes, again. Turns out, final moments we reveal, no, the doppelganger, the shadow girl, kidnapped Adelaide, switched with her, and went on to grow up. And marry a man and have children and live a normal life and seemingly forget everything that had come before for reasons that I think are very important in my initial reading of what this movie might be about. But I'm going to throw it back to you before I get into that uh, and and see where you think this all might lead. Well, I think you did a really great job of laying it out. The bottom line is when our heroine kills the underground doppelganger – we learn it's really the human, the person who was born human above ground yes. who dies. Yes. And that should be, and I think at quick glance, it is tragic in a way or disappointing or almost this unhappy ending because mm-hmm. this this underground thing somehow has managed to infiltrate right, yes. humanity yes. and is passing right. as a normal human. and. The thing that makes this so beautifully, wonderfully complicated is once you look past that, you realize that that moment at the end where this is all dawning on her, where I agree with you that in that moment we are supposed to believe that it's only now, it's only in this moment that the person we think is Adelaide is realizing who she really is. Who she really is at the same time we are. And when she looks at her son and he's looking at her, And maybe he's looking at her and maybe we're imposing this look on him a little bit because of what we've just learned. Mm -hmm. But he's looking at her a little mistrustfully. Yes. Again, it's very easy to want to say, oh, man, she's the bad person. But in that moment, how is that any different as far as a moment of compassion and love from a mother looking at her son? It's no different just because she happened to be born underground. 
that she is not quote unquote human. That is still her son. She gave birth to that child. She loves that Mm -hmm. child unconditionally. She loves her daughter. She loves her husband. That final look is still the same look of a mother's love as it was before. And also, of course, we can look at the negative side of this. On one hand, we know that there was a human girl who got kidnapped and left down there and didn't get her life to play out the way she exactly wanted it to. And has at this point been brutally murdered. Has at this point been brutally murdered. We do have to acknowledge all that. But we also see in the Adelaide at the end of this film, someone who escaped, someone who aspired to rise above her circumstances and did it and did it beautifully and experienced everything that any one of those underground creatures could ever hope to experience so there it is out in the sun okay. out in the real world yes. and and this movie then takes on this this almost ray bradbury all summer in a day type sci-fi yes component that makes it really more about what truly does make us human versus it being about just trying to scare us well i would say it's a downer ending for sure probably because at heart i don't think this movie wants us to root for anyone. I think it wants us to appropriately look at ourselves in the mirror. Yeah. The metaphor I think might be working, or at least was working for me, is really a sort of a prophetic denouncement of American consumption and you maybe so? even capitalism. And these are the these are sort of the breadcrumbs I'm picking up that this might be where it's going. And first off, think of the affluent setting we're in here. Yeah. All of these families we meet very well off in their sure. cars, their summer houses. Um, okay. So that's where yeah. we're at. Their friends are pretty much yuppie scum played yeah. by Tim Heidecker, Tim Heidecker and Elizabeth Moss. Elizabeth yeah. Moss, more humor brought yeah. uh, from both of them. Um, I, I think what the movie is forcing us to realize is that for Americans – All of our comforts, most of our comforts come at a cost of someone else, okay? So there's not a literal shadow self who is suffering Mm -hmm. somewhere underneath to to help us live this way, as they are in this movie. But there are um, people mining for materials that make our smartphones. Um, There are rabbits being tested for the makeup we wear. I think the Hands Across America is chosen because if you remember, yeah. and I had to look this up because I forgot, it was to fund nonprofits who were fighting homelessness That's right. and poverty, okay? Mm-hmm. There's a reason for that. And maybe, you know, others will see this movie and say, well, it's obvious because of one line that Red gives when she's talking to Adelaide after they've invaded the home, mm-hmm. she has her tied up. And she's giving her a very long monologue, um, gives a few clues about her past. She does. That's where we learn that they had to eat raw rabbits. That's what they f- were fed as, she points out, Adelaide was eating delicious meals all her life. Of course. Adelaide says, who are you? Or I think the husband, I think Gabe says, who are you? And her brief answer, which comes across as a joke in the moment, is we're Americans. Yeah. And yeah. then she moves on. Let me give you another clue. Okay. This one is maybe overdone a little bit because we see in the that prologue. Is a well, shopping mall? <laughs> I didn't think of that, but I it like is. it. Yeah, it's straight out of Romero. I yeah. like it. Yeah. Um, we see in that prologue where Adelaide is young, she passes a man. One of the people she looks at mm-hmm. is a skeevy looking guy holding a sign, Jeremiah 1111. Okay. So Jeremiah 1111. Did you look I, it up? I had to look it up. Basically, it's, you know, it's your usual prophetic Old Testament of stuff. I will bring on them a disaster they cannot escape. 
although they cry out to me, I will not listen to them. Okay, maybe that's not quite so specific. But when you think about Jeremiah, uh, a prophet who, when he was called, was first the first thing he said as an excuse was, "I I cannot speak well, mm-hmm. or I don't know how to speak." And that's a running line as well that Adelaide, because she's been swapped, because underneath she didn't know how to speak. No. As regular people did above ground. And right. so when she arises, she pretends to be mute. Okay. I'm almost done here. Yes. She <laughs> does pretend to be mute. And that's, be that's mute. also why the red that we see, who it turns out was human all along, obviously she can talk. That's why she's special and different than everyone else. Yes. But she speaks in that very sort of protracted, almost guttural way because she's lived her whole life down there. And also I think we can still, sorry to sidetrack you here, but no, I think fine. we can still look at both of them. I don't think we're supposed to completely overlook that each of them still went through a traumatic experience. That's the other key, is that one is still traumatized and maybe in some way split inside, if you will, by the fact that she went in and discovered her opposite. They both discovered their opposites and discovered an alternate universe, essentially, that they didn't know existed. That would take its toll on both of them. Yes. So I don't think we're supposed to choose one over the other. Nope. I think we're supposed to see them as as put that's, together that's as why it's prophets. Called us. As that's a, why it's yes. called us. Well, and, yeah. and what they form is a prophetic figure, okay? Yeah. Ca- a calling a nation to awareness of its idolatry. Mm. In this case, American consumption. And here's why the twist is so brilliant. And what I love is that she wasn't aware of it because it's the final word revealing how complacent we can become in our affluence. That if you get comfortable enough, if you live a good enough life, it's so easy to forget the cost of that. Sure. And and basic at very basic level who you are. Now it wasn't until walking home from the theater that even some of this started to come together. Sure. I don't know if it holds at all as a thread. And that's how it does is distinct from Get Out, where you know the stuff you're supposed to be thinking yes. about, right? I could be way off no, on this, you're, you're, but I think there uh, you're, you're not way off. are a few kernels. It's there. all there. There's, there's more than a few kernels there. And we see more even in that relationship with the other family, this whole notion of affluence. We touched on it, but even down to the stuff about their boats, yes. comparing their boats, which he... Winston Duke's character gave one out and bought a boat, but it's mm-hmm. this crappy one called the Crawdaddy that barely can run, whereas Tim Heidecker's character has this very fancy one, and they are comparing. And we see they how talk that about weighs. Their cars. Yeah, we see how that weighs on Gabe that he can't quite pull off that same quality of life that Heidecker's character can. So it's undeniably there. And I'll come back to that in a sec, but I also just want to point out that when you do start to go back and piece the movie together, you recognize how many sort of little breadcrumbs were left for you along the way, like the fact that this Adelaide, who we now know grew up in this environment and doesn't speak very well and doesn't just have sort of the the go-to rhetoric that we all do as far as small talk, when she's on the beach with Elizabeth Moss, she's like, you know, I, I have trouble kind of making conversation. That mm-hmm. makes sense once we understand why. But also, there are a couple moments that seem inexplicable at the time, one in particular, and I love it as far as audiences having a similar reaction to moments in Get Out and having a shared experience. There's a moment in this movie, well, we can say it because we're talking spoilers, Mm -hmm. where the doppelganger daughter dies or Mm. is dying. And they're trying to get out of here. The doppelganger daughter was trying to stop them. She's now dead. And somehow (laughs) Adelaide gets out of the car. And I literally said the words out loud. Just drive. Yeah. Right. And so did everybody behind me. So we're having that moment. It's the the dumb horror movie decision moment. It is. And in that moment, 
you're wondering, what is it? What could possibly make her in this moment want to get out and investigate this? Right. When any number of bad things could happen. And she wisely said, we got to get out of here. Let's drive. Well, of course, in retrospect, in some ways, that's her daughter, too. Yes. That's her son, too. That's in a version of the world. Those are her children. And so she is having that moment of compassion with them because she has those kinds of feelings. For she them. has another one with uh, the doppelganger son. Exactly. Um, and, exactly. And that brings when he to mind does. something else that I think does play into this theme is they have to kill their shadow selves, which is often enacted as um, a form of sacrifice, you mm. know? So it's this, it's this idea of, of giving something up. You're, you're go- if you're going to give up this life of affluence you live or this consumption that you're practicing, that's going to involve sacrifice of some sort. And there's a very poetic moment with when the doppelganger's son essentially is convinced to walk back into a fire because the real son mm-hmm. realizes any movement he makes, the doppelganger will copy. Will marry, yep. And so it's it's the two boys stepping away from each other because the real son knows if the doppelganger steps back far enough, he'll walk into this yes. burning fire. Yes. That's how that kid is killed. That is. Which is horrible. It is. And um, Adelaide wants to prevent it. She She's does horrified want, yeah, in that so moment. it's another moment of connection there. I think you've... You've convinced me more than I was walking into the studio as far as there being that satirical element. I suppose satire might be the right word as far as making a statement, trying to make some kind of prophetic statement, have us walk out of the theater thinking about how we all can be better people, which is the point of a Jeremiah, right? So I get that. At the same time, I really was more caught up in the idea that that line, which seems so on the nose almost hokey when she says we're Americans. I mean, it's kind of a howler. The, the crowd yeah. actually well, laughs at it. that's how I took it too, was just an aside. So for me, instead of wanting to underline it and go, okay, this is a point about American consumption and affluence, I thought, you know what, that's that's very clever. That's Peel sort of giving us a diversion. He's He's telling us, or he's trying to give us these hints that that's what the movie's about, when what he really wants us to think about I wish I could articulate better, but it's what I was trying to get at in terms of what defines us as humans. Because no matter where you come from, we see in this moment this this thing that is decidedly not human, nevertheless exhibiting all the characteristics and traits we would expect in a quote-unquote good person. I think that's where it ties back to what you're saying as far as that being the ultimate point of the film is making you making you really question what kind of life you're leading and whether or not you are getting complacent and you are overlooking those who are less fortunate and you're getting distracted by things like, do you have the better car? Do you have the good enough boat? I think it is tying those things together. Well, what's the, what does she say at one point? She describes how their bodies are separate, but they share a soul or something. And one criticism you might lob at this movie is that red does too much explaining. Yeah, the, she I felt almost, that at the She end. almost gets, um, before that amazing ballet slash mm-hmm. knife fight that they um, engage in, Red and mm-hmm. Adelaide, that cuts back to images. I mean, it's really brilliantly edited, cuts back to images of her doing a ballet performance as a child. But she says something before that in what is kind of almost like a villain speech about their souls being shared or, or something, you know, they're tethered. The word tethering is often yes. used. And so maybe there's something there to what you're getting at in that they they are not full people 
together they are, you mm-hmm. know, us, back to the title. Yes. So that makes sense. Yeah, I did wonder about the first speech that Red gives is such a feat of performance that I forgave it the explaining it does. Um, and I was so desperate for Agreed. a few clues at that point. Agreed. I do wonder if that climactic one falls a little bit on the side of, you know, show me rather than tell me yeah. everything that's been going yeah, on. Yeah, a little bit. Now, is the moment of our observer, Adelaide, early in the film, who's going to find herself when she goes in to that place, is it too much that she's taking a bite of an apple? on a stick and there's a certain religious obvious connotation to that knowledge and that discovery. And we can get into larger questions of sin and going back to that God question. But the reason I bring it up too, is as I talk about some of these breadcrumbs, a little clues, you notice that the first time we see the family sit down to dinner, everybody, everybody is eating like fish or something, chicken. They're eating something like takeout food and she's eating out of her own container. She's eating a strawberry. So it does tie her back to to that girl, but it makes you think, just as we see her later at the beach, only drinking water. Mm. You would sort of expect that whether she was conscious of it or not, that someone who grew up in an environment that didn't have natural things, didn't have water, didn't have strawberries. Just had raw rabbits. Yeah, that that they would find that... (laughs) particularly indulgent and would enjoy it. I thought you were going to say, is it too on the nose that the uh, funhouse mirror thing she goes into says, find yourself. No, it really does. No, I just think that's a great joke. (laughs) I think that's a good joke, ultimately. So there is a lot more going on to this film than maybe first meets the eye. I said to you as we were walking over from the screening, I noticed over the weekend that film Twitter seemed to buzz about something somebody must have said. This happens all the time on Twitter where there's a dialogue, but you don't know. You know people are talking about something, but you don't know why. Yeah, sure. And the thing I don't know why is why people were talking about Spielberg in relation to Jordan Peele. Now, there is a mention of Spielberg in the credits of the mm-hmm. film, and there is notably, you talk about little clues or, or little nuggets that he likes to drop along the way. The boy at the beach this summer visit to the beach is wearing a Jaws shirt, right? So there's some Spielberg touches or references, but as I think about this film, isn't the filmmaker that it owes the most to? Don't we see Jordan Peele sort of actually following in the footsteps of Shyamalan? There's a lot of... Down to the twist ending, down to all the clues and everything fitting into a certain place. The the technique in a certain way as well. Um, Yeah, I can see that. Yeah, more, more so than Spielberg. Sometimes. Now, we found a lot of depth in The Sixth Sense, a fair amount. And we also yeah. found it, until that unfortunate bit of text at the end, in Unbreakable too. But I think it's probably fair to say that Shyamalan is generally more interested in, sometimes to his discredit, is more interested in his own cleverness and the craft being what's on display versus have any kind of statement to make like yeah, Peele I would, does. Right. I would say... Um, you know, the genre is first and foremost for Shyamalan, while Peel so far seems to have as much interest in genre, but also for the metaphorical potency it can afford. Hmm. We're going to stop there. We've probably said enough for now about us and look forward to your feedback. If you have seen the film and agree or disagree with our takes, email us feedback at filmspotting.net. While many of the great films of the 2000s have already fallen like flies, who remains? What battles await? Film Spotting Madness, Sweet 16 Results, and Elite 8 matchups are next. Stay with us. I go out at night and paint the stars. I go out at night and leave my head on the 
Michael Keaton in the trailer for Dumbo, Disney's live-action remake of its 1941 animated classic, the new one, directed by none other than Tim Burton. We've got Michael Keaton, Tim Burton, reteaming for the first time since 1992's Batman. Does that excite you, Josh? Will there be mystique and magic? (laughs) Mystique, too? I expect magic. I'm hoping for mystique. That's a trivia question I would have gotten wrong if you had said, have Michael Keaton and Tim Burton paired up after Batman Returns. I would have thought they had to have done it in the intervening years, but I guess not. No, they haven't. And we will see how that reteaming plays out, or at least you will, along with Michael Phillips. I will be off next week, but you guys will get a chance to weigh in on how Keaton does, along with Colin Farrell and Batman Returns alum Danny DeVito. Now, I noticed I wasn't consulted at all in this top five that you guys have come up with, which is Movie Manimals Part 2. Almost. Almost. It's pretty close, actually. I think by design, you guys (laughs) left me out of this one because really your most inspired work comes when it's you and Michael riffing on these top five topics. Well, we we just try to go for ones that we know you would have no interest in participating in, pretty much. So Manimals, yes. And here, What's a circus act? Top me, five movie. Give me an circus example. Acts. What is a circus act? See, this is why we didn't bother involving you. It's right there. Have you ever been to the circus? There are acts. As a kid. They're, yeah, but give me a good example magical, of a They're magical, and sometimes, one. Adam, they have mystique. I'm just going <laughs> to so, leave it there. That'll be a tease for next week's show. Aren't there some circus acts in Lola Montez? Oh, yeah. That's in the running for okay. sure. Ben mentioned See? recently on the There's show. There's my top five. There you got it. Multiple scenes You're from done. Lola Montez. <laughs> okay. We'll try to vary it up a little bit from there when Michael and I take a swing at it. Now, I am really depressed that I won't be there to share the final four matchups in Film Spotting Madness. I know Michael has to be overjoyed. Yeah. Film Spotting Madness is always his favorite time of the year. So That's we'll get his snarky say. comments <laughs> as he criticizes the choices of us in putting the whole bracket together. And the listeners for how they voted. He really criticizes the entire endeavor. Yeah. I don't think he's on board at all. No. So great to have him on for this show. It will be. I wanted to take a quick minute to invite our Denver and Boulder area listeners to the Conference on World Affairs. That's going to be April 9 through 13 in Boulder. This is something I've been attending for, this will be my third year now, hosting Ebert Interruptus, started by Roger Ebert, again, where we spend a couple of days working through a film Frame by frame, people in the audience can shout stop and make comments, ask questions. It is possible, Adam, that this year's Interruptus will be a going away party for a title that is in Film Spotting Madness. You should have planned better. If it gets voted out, it will be burned. Yes, yeah. We're going to hang on to, if that happens, we're going to hang on to one copy for a few more weeks (laughs) and we will have the final viewing Mm. of WALL-E, Pixar's WALL-E, if indeed... If it indeed. gets knocked out of the Sweet 16, 
We'll watch it one more time at the Conference on World Affairs. So listeners in the area, you'll definitely want to take that last shot at watching Wally bring your kids. This is going to be more of a family event, we hope, this year as well. Michael Casey, the film critic for the Boulder Weekly, will be driving the DVD as usual. And if you live in the area, I'm going to be on three other panels at the Conference on World Affairs, all film-related. This stuff is all free. So check out that schedule. We'll put a link in the show notes and really would like to see you at some of these events. Of course, there is a film spotting meetup. We do this every year. Also, really good time returning faces now that I get to reconnect with. We'll do that meetup April 12 in Boulder. I'll put details about the meetup specifically on the Film Spotting website. You can find that by the time this show is live at filmspotting.net slash events. Hope to see some of you there. So give me a taste, just a taste of this bonus free Josh Larson content. Give me a panel and one of these burning topics you're going to discuss. I don't get to choose. One of the fun things about Conference on World Affairs is the topics are all over the place and they just throw you in a panel. Can they ask you about world affairs instead of I believe my first year I was on a slightly world affair panel and performed so poorly, I'm now relegated to the movie ones. We're going to talk about the potential death of the big screen experience. So streaming, those sorts of things, that is one topic. Another one I'm going to be on is the renewed idea of separating the art from the artist, particularly as it applies to, I'm not sure if it's only film artists, but definitely that will be considered, but probably, you know, things like Michael Jackson, R. Kelly, Louis C.K., all these sorts of um, figures who are making us rethink what's a relationship with their work, given what we know about some of these people now. Mm. So interesting stuff. Yeah, it sounds like it will be. I hope everyone does check that out. Again, filmspotting.net slash events for more information. That's also where our local listeners, those in the Chicago area, can find out about free movie passes. And right now we are giving away passes to a Wednesday, April 3rd screening of the new movie starring Sam Rockwell and Taraji P. Henson. It's called The Best of Enemies. It opens on Friday, April 5th. So if you want a chance to see that film for free in advance of its release, you can do that by visiting filmspotting.net slash events. So, um, I want to try something. What? I want to see if you stay together or if you dissolve into molecules. How am I doing? Still here. <laughs> Good, I like being here. Julie Delpy in Before Sunset poetically describing what happens when a beloved film turns to ash in the film spotting madness incinerator. I've always wondered. <laughs> Sunset in one of our closest and most troubling Sweet 16 contests going up against David Lynch's Mulholland Drive. And I did vote in this, as I said I would on the show, as much as it pained me. Truly pained me. I voted for Lynch. I went Mulholland Drive. All of the Sweet 16 results and our Elite 8 matchups are coming up in just a moment. This is our fifth year of Film Spotting Madness. It's a single elimination tournament where we are trying to get down to the best film of the 2000s. Last year, it was the 1990s. Next year, it will be the 2010s, which will set us up perfectly for our look back, probably a top 10, maybe even a top 20 here over a week or two on the show of the best films of the decade. Our polls go live at filmspotting.net slash madness every Friday. You have until Monday at noon to vote. So you don't have a whole lot of time. We encourage you to visit that website, filmspotting.net slash madness, or follow us on Twitter for updates. A quick reminder that if you subscribe to the Film Spotting newsletter, that goes out every Monday at noon, and you do get early access to the voting, filmspotting.net slash newsletter 
to sign up for that. Let's get into the results then, Josh. And as we usually do, we will go in order from the biggest blowout to the tightest contest. We start with Memento going up against the number two overall seed in the tournament, Paul Thomas Anderson's There Will Be Blood. So Memento, a little reminder here, beat Cachet and In the Mood for Love already in the tournament. Blood, meanwhile, beat Atonement and Amelie. Mariel Mitchell from Martinez, California, wrote in, It always breaks my heart when I hear people say that Memento is just a gimmick, or that it is all form over substance, or worst of all, that it is cold and emotionally distant. How do you cope with the loss of a loved one, with the loss of identity and purpose when you literally cannot heal or move on? This movie may not wear its heart on its sleeve, but see it with its shirt off, and you'll see that its heart is tattooed all over it. Well said, Mariel, and I love the defense of Memento. It deserved better, but... A tough draw here in the Sweet 16 going up against There Will Be Blood, and There Will Be Blood takes it 74% of the vote to 26%. Up next is Sofia Coppola's Lost in Translation versus Michelle Gondry's Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. So looking back, Translation beat Beau Travai and Shaun of the Dead, while Sunshine beat Gus Van Sant's Elephant. Tim wrote in, this is the Sweet 16 matchup that most deserves to get the bracket makers fired. Not only are they my two favorites in the tournament, but they occupy the same space in my heart. Both films incisively capture feelings of loneliness and regret without being dreary as films. Both show how one can find moments of beauty, humor, and companionship in the midst of a world in which we find ourselves alone. This choice is so tough, I needed a tiebreaker. Adam promised if Lost in Translation wins this round, it's going in the Pantheon. So to punish Adam for making me choose between these two films, that's how I'm voting. Love your logic, Tim. Let's see what happened. Oh, Translation lost 30% to 70% of the vote. So the campaign must continue. We have to find another reason to convince you to put Lost in Translation in the Pantheon. For now, Eternal Sunshine does move on. We get to our next matchup, Guillermo del Toro's Pan's Labyrinth versus the number one overall seed, the Coen Brothers' No Country for Old Men. No Country beat Duncan Jones' Moon and Ryan Johnson's Brick. So just taking down anyone who had anything to do with the film spotting Golden Brick. Kind of being a bully, really. Yeah, the Coen brothers Picking don't on care. these smaller films. They don't care about your little film spotting award or that it was named after you. Pan's Labyrinth beat Grizzly Man and Quentin Tarantino's Kill Bill. Here's Lauren from New York City. Only in the course of fighting through this grueling maze you call a tournament has it become clear to me that Pan's Labyrinth is my favorite film of the 2000s. I voted for it, and if there truly is a shining other world, I will keep voting for it until ultimate victory. Hope springs eternal. <laughs> so I don't want to digress here, and I don't want to plead too hard to try to justify the silliness that is film spotting madness. We know it's silly, despite all the hours that Sam and myself ultimately do put into staging the tournament. But that is exactly why this is actually fun and not totally totally arbitrary, that this bracket can help even one listener kind of crystallize just how much a certain film means to them. We've done our jobs. Can I use that next week to convince Michael Phillips that this is all worth doing? Try it. Okay. Try it. Now you have some time to prepare. You can hopefully express it more eloquently than I just did. I don't think it's going to work, but you can try. Nigel Smith, our friend in Tufnell Park, London, writes, I rewatched No Country last night for the first time since its cinema release to double check if I was happy with this vote. It's a great, grim movie. But Pan's Labyrinth feels like a more unique piece of cinema, and that's the film I'd want to revisit in years to come. I also remember being very annoyed when No Country Beat There Will Be Blood at the Oscars, so I can't risk that happening again in madness. Now, someone had to write in in defense of the Coen brothers here, Josh. Here's Tyler in Kingston, Ontario. Let me ask you this. Pan's Labyrinth. 
if the rule you followed brought you to this, of what use was the rule? Well played, Tyler. Well played. The winner, no country. 68%. So not a total landslide, but 68 to 32. Yeah, some of those comments, I thought maybe a little momentum was building for Pan's Labyrinth. No luck. All right, David Fincher's Zodiac went up against Alfonso Cuaron's Children of Men. Zodiac beat Wendy and Lucy and The Prestige to make it this far, while Children of Men took out Let the Right One In and, thankfully... In Bruges. Here's Aaron Teachman in D.C. This is rough. I've been on the Zodiac bandwagon since the film came out, which felt pretty lonely for a while. But the harsh light of the madness has revealed quite a few folks who appreciate Fincher's tense and riveting exploration of the costs of our dangerous fascination with psychopaths. But in trying times like these, choosing between two films that steep us in the harrowing stakes of existence that acknowledge the darkness, I have to choose the one that offers a tantalizing glimpse of the coming dawn and vote for Quran's Children of Men. A lot of people, it seems, agreed with Aaron Teachman. 64% of the vote going to the Quran film. And Zodiac is out. One of our top 10 seeds is out. What about Pixar's Wall-E up oh against... Oh, just Christopher Nolan's The Dark Knight. The Dark Knight beat the assassination of Jesse James by the coward Robert Ford and the Coen brothers' A Serious Man. Wally took down Pedro Almodovar's Talk to Her and The Departed. Taking out The Departed, very impressive. All right, here's Chris, Massa Minute Massa, the best superhero movie ever made, going up against the brightest star in the Pixar universe. Maybe this is the superhero oversaturation speaking, but Wally feels more and more like a masterwork that needs to be preserved for future generations. I will miss The Dark Knight, but maybe it's just not the movie we need right now, or not the movie we deserve, or something like that. Yeah. But we need Wally. <laughs> this from Nithin. Fun fact about these two films, they came out the very same summer, within three weeks of each other. I remember having to choose between Wally and The Dark Knight when we went to the theater. My teenage high schooler self had to pick The Dark Knight, and I loved it. But not this time. I couldn't let go of that little robot that could. A real-world thought experiment going on there. All right, here's Chris Corrali. You either die a superhero movie or you live long enough to see yourself <laughs> okay, be we're the up villain to your tricks. that knocks out superior films. Time to do what you do best, Wally, and finally take out this trash. Yeah. Ooh, wow. Didn't happen that way, though, Josh, did it? Oh, goodbye, Wally. Not yet. Your last chance to see Wally. <laughs> Conference on World You're Affairs. Giving it Ebert a reprieve. It has a reprieve. It's got about a month-long reprieve. Okay. And then it's goodbye. Yeah, 62% of the vote going to The Dark Knight. Richard Linklater's Before Sunset went up against David Lynch's oh. Mulholland Drive. We know which way Adam just voted. just this? Nope, we got to do it. Sunset has already beaten Adaptation and Fantastic Mr. Fox. Oh. Mulholland beat Donnie Darko and Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. Devin, Jolly Jack Boot Wambold in New York said, can we get a live cam on Adam toiling over this matchup like they do with the pregnant pandas at the zoo? <laughs> I don't know why Devin went there for the I comparison. don't either, but I mean, <laughs> it, it would have been just as long and arduous. <laughs> Alex from Tacoma, Washington had this to say, oh man, why are you doing this to me, man? Why can't we have nice things? A lovely dream of a film versus a labyrinthine nightmare? I will probably go against what the majority will vote for, but my heart lies with Before Sunset. Yeah, my heart lies with Sunset as well. My brain went with Mulholland Drive, and that seems to be the way our listeners went. 56% going towards David Lynch. So Before Sunset is out. For some reason, when I look up at you now, I've, I've just seen a panda. <laughs> I can't get it out of my head. Fair enough. The Fellowship of the Ring versus... Inglorious Bastards. Bastards beat A History of Violence and Minority Report. Fellowship beat City of God and another Pixar film out, The Incredibles. 
Gustav Arndahl from Copenhagen. Inglorious Bastards is a great movie from a great director with great actors and a bunch of all-time great scenes. But Lord of the Rings is much, much more than that. It's a cultural institution. It reshaped a country. And even if it might not be as artistically precise as other movies in this tournament, it remains the greatest cinematic achievement of the 2000s and among the greatest of all time. It's a G-damn miracle. Woo! <laughs> Gustav is in. Yeah. David from Roswell, Georgia writes in, and you know I can't do the voice. You should have read this one, Josh. <laughs> you got it. Go for it. The Sneaky Little Hobbitses. No, I not, can't do it. Not it no, at all. No. The Sneaky Little Hobbitses are hiding under the floorboards. I only do that kind of performance when I'm getting paid. So Massacre Theater is the only time. I'm not going to just do it now. Okay. I understand. So Fair the enough. Hobbitses, they're hiding under the floorboards, but I know that Colonel Landa will find them. It's Inglorious Bastards. It's not Inglorious Bastards. The Fellowship of the Ring taking wow. Tarantino down 55% to 45%. Technically an upset here, an 11 seed out of all the 64 films, Fellowship of the Ring, an 11 seed taking down the six-seeded Inglorious Bastards. I think this is a case, though, where Sam and I gave too much credence to Letterboxd and the popularity of Inglorious Bastards. Now, granted, the Fellowship of the Ring probably has numbers that actually... Yeah, uh, that's, I would think so. But I think we got blinded by the Tarantino love and thought, oh, that movie has to be a top 10 seed. My instinct at the start of the tournament would have been to have that movie lower. In fact, even lower than the Kill Bill films. But it seems overall more people have seen and love Bastards. It did not. We'll advance. get to our prediction brackets. Do you, do you remember? Did you predict that yeah. this matchup would come about and Fellowship would move on? At the last minute, I went with Fellowship of the Ring. Oh, man. Yeah. That, so that I probably it. saved you, I bet. Well, it saved me for now. Okay. We'll get to that. Hayao Miyazaki's Spirited Away went up against Wes Anderson's The Royal Tenenbaums. Here's Joshua Gall. I don't like you. I would rather pick between my two kids. I'm voting for Tenenbaums, but only because I feel like Miyazaki will get enough love. Again, to reiterate, Adam, Sam, Josh, you're guilty by association. I don't like you. <laughs> Steve Kimes writes, and I feel like I should say this as Gandalf in <laughs> The Fellowship of the Ring. Nay, I say. Well, there Nay. you go. Getting into it. I cannot bear the thought of my beloved spirited away disappearing from the world. If Tenenbaums wins, I will hide my copy of Miyazaki's animated delight and hold underground viewings. <laughs> so will the fantastic Mr. Fox people come to those viewings? Yeah, Steve Great. and I have been talking. Sounds lovely. Spirited away protests will be held in every major city beginning in Portland, Oregon, because they always begin in Portland, demanding that the film be seen in theaters. Again, I defy you, defy you to burn my copy, to take this film away from future generations. You can vote against us, but we will never back to the Anderson oppressors. <laughs> Have a good day, yeah, Steve those, says. Those Anderson oppressors yeah. are a tough bunch. Yeah. The very twee Anderson <laughs> oppressors. I'm, I'm you, terrified. You don't want them on your ass. No. <laughs> and... We don't have to worry. We're not going to have those Anderson oppressors going against us because Wes Anderson's film moves on 54% to Spirited Away's 46. Strong showing by Spirited Away, though. I'm encouraged yeah, by for that. for sure. Okay. That brings us to the elite eight matchups. There are only eight films left in all of Film Spotting Madness joining Wes Anderson, the Coen brothers, Lynch, Coron, PTA, Christopher Nolan, Peter Jackson, and Michelle Gondry. A pretty good representation of the decade, I think. Our first matchup is the Royal Tenenbaums mm -hmm. versus No Country for Old Men. Will mm -hmm. Wes Anderson run into the Coen brothers buzzsaw? <sighs> my prediction is yes. Where's my vote? Um, <laughs> I believe 
Oh, man, I think I have No Country ranked as... This is where my letterbox rankings might be helpful. I don't have them handy. I believe I have No Country ranked third among... Cohen Films. Cohen Films. And I think... Oh, I think Royal Tenenbaums is like third... Where are you voting? I'm going to look this up. I'm going to look <laughs> this up. It's an easy one for me, despite how much I love Tenenbaums. I'm definitely voting for No Country. And this is one of those where my letterbox rankings don't help me. Tenenbaums is my favorite Anderson and No Country is at least one or two in the mix with Fargo for favorite Coen Brothers film. Okay, I'm going to have to vote against Wes. I have Tenenbaums ranked three behind Rushmore and Isle of Dogs. I've got No Country as the second best film of the Coen Brothers after Miller's Crossing. You know you're comparing apples and oranges here, though, right? I need a pathway, Adam. (laughs) These rankings are giving me a pathway. Sure. That I can live with. Okay. It is. But you're voting against Wes Anderson. I know. I know. But I still have Isle of Dogs and Rushmore. Wait, no, Rushmore got knocked out. Yeah, Rushmore lost in the 90s. It's gone forever. Steve Kimes has a copy. (laughs) Our second matchup, Mulholland Drive versus Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. Two movies very much about memory. Two directors who like to play with our expectations, play with our minds a bit as we watch their films, David Lynch and Michelle Gondry. Where are you going with this one? Both films badly need a revisit by me. Haven't seen either in a long time. Because of that, I'm going to go with my initial impressions And that leaves me voting for Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, which I just fell head over heels for. Well, I love Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. It's in my top six of this entire tournament. Unfortunately, Mulholland Drive is in my top five of this entire tournament. And if I'm going to allow Mulholland Drive to take down before sunset, then you better believe I'm going to keep voting for it. So I'm going with Lynch. The third matchup, Children of Men versus There Will Be Blood. So Children of Men... Maybe my favorite Quran film. Um, yeah, yeah. Children of Men. Really? I'm voting. I'm voting for it over There Will Be Blood. Yeah. Okay. Doing it. It's done. Yeah, it's done. And I will offset that vote with my vote for Paul Thomas Anderson's There Will Be Blood, bringing us to our final Elite Eight matchup and the one that is going to be most distressing. I can say this lovingly to all the geeks out there. This is really a prime geek matchup. Oh yeah, this is rough. The Fellowship of the Ring. Versus The Dark Knight. Yeah, it's a genre showdown, really, among all of the films that are left. I think you can say that. A Um, franchise showdown in a way. Wow. Um, Holy cow. I am voting for Fellowship. Hmm. Why? Don't ask me. Okay. (laughs) That's that's madness. I have no reason. I think it's... uh, You don't have an answer. I can't recall the, the listener who left a comment saying this, but something about the superhero fatigue, even though... Loved Captain Marvel and am back, you know, trending upward in my Marvel affection right now. Still, still, I think I'd rather give up, even though it's one of the best superhero films, I'd rather give up that than this pinnacle fantasy achievement that is Hmm. The Fellowship of the Ring. Okay, well, we're going to split again. In fact, I would have predicted that we'd split on all four of these inexplicably. You went against Wes and picked No Country, but for me— Already regretting that. Yeah. For me, The Dark Knight just edges out. The Fellowship of the Ring. We can't wait to see how these results play out. Voting for Film Spotting Madness is open at filmspotting.net slash madness. Vote now. Invite your friends. It's a lot of fun. It's angsty fun, but it's fun. We do have to check in with the bracket contest. This is where you, me, our producer Sam, and the founding father of Film Spotting Madness listener Mike Merrigan get to compete against each other. There's really no winner of consequence, but the loser does have to watch 
whatever the latest Adam Sandler movie is to show up on Netflix. That has been you for each of the past four years, I believe. It ha- I'm something of an expert on Adam Sandler Netflix movies. <laughs> Your own so Adam really Sandler Adam, marathon. I'm the winner. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Let's see how we're doing. Sam is in first place with hmm. 89 total points. He got seven of the eight matchups in the Sweet 16, correct. I am in second place just behind him with 88.5. I also, You're right there. I also got seven of eight right in this round. The one I got wrong, Josh, spirited away. I thought it might just take down Wes Anderson. Mike Merrigan in third place with 88 points. So we're all bunched together there. Also, seven of eight right in this round. And finally... Is there a drop-off here? Bringing up the rear... From 88 points down to 77 points. A little bit of a drop-off. Josh Larson, you only got six right in the Sweet 16 round. So you are in last right now. But as I suggested on last week's show, it truly is going to come down to how this all plays out and the eventual winner. Because we have the same four movies, all four of us, Mm -hmm. advancing to the final four. And... Can I, I make up this sort of ground, I, though? Yeah, you can, because really? the final picks are worth a lot of points, and okay. I went out on a limb. I'm the only person who went out on a limb with my choice for the Film Spotting Madness champion. I went against all of my normal <laughs> cinephile instincts, and I'm pretty sure it's going to cost me. But for now, I'm going to relish being 11 and a half points ahead of you. And I will cling to whatever hope I have. Filmspotting.net slash madness. All right, so it's ending far too soon, but... It will end on a very high note. Opening night is the last film in our John Cassavetes marathon. Our review is next. Stay with us. We've talked about it in letters. And we've talked about it on the film. But how you really feel about it. I don't really know. I mean, we all know you changed all the lines tonight. Uh, doesn't that tell you something? I mean, don't you say to yourself, Myrtle, maybe I'm not so smart. Maybe Sarah's play has something to say. Maybe I haven't loved anything in my life. Maybe I should have gotten married. Maybe I should have had children. Did that ever occur to you? Years ago. I don't want any smart answers. That's Ben Gazzara, again, finding himself having to give a backstage pep talk, this time to Jenna Rollins in 1977's opening night, the fourth film in our John Cassavetes marathon. Last week, it was the third film, The Killing of a Chinese Bookie, starring Gazzara. We will see if he's in contention for any of our Cassavetes marathon awards coming up here in just a minute. We're calling those 
the Blue Hats. Of course, Rollins, we've already seen in 1968's Faces and A Woman Under the Influence. Cassavetes himself is part of Opening Night's ensemble, acting in front of the camera here. In Opening Night, Rollins is the star of a troubled stage production that's currently in out-of-town previews on its way to a New York opening. So Gazzara is the director of this production. Cassavetes, as we mentioned, appears he's Rollins' co-star and, I think we can say, her former lover. Let's turn things over to the professor, as we've been wont to do in this marathon. Listener Nathaniel Myers in South Bend, Indiana, is going to help set up our conversation. Hey, film spotting. What the marathon as a whole opened up for me most in this film was something we might consider both a thematic concern of Cassavetes and a stylistic principle. That is, what happens when people go off script? As a stylistic principle, I see this partly in the improvisational nature of the performances that we've seen throughout these films, but I see it also in the way Cassavetti chooses to shoot the theatrical performances in this film. Sometimes we're in the position of the audience, both literally and figuratively, watching at a distance from the stage, trying to figure out what's part of the play's original script and what's Myrtle going off book. Other times, Cassavetes brings the camera up on stage, and we see in close-up the looks and reactions of Myrtle and her co-stars, especially Maurice, played by Cassavetes himself. And at these times, I found myself trying to discern how much the two were responding in character, and how much they were responding as Myrtle and Maurice, with their own history as jilted and callous former lovers. Listen, I promised I'd never double-cross you. I told you as long as I was here, I'd be straight with you. Uh, I was very much in love with you, Virginia. When was that? No, come on, really, I would like to know. You don't get to me. If you want to get to me, you don't get to me. There's no way for you to get to me. These tricks of the camera leave us uncertain and unsettled as to what we're seeing just as Myrtle, going off script, leaves her co-stars unsettled, and just as Mabel, in A Woman Under the Influence, leaves her husband and their family and his co-workers unsettled, just as Richard and Maria Forrest in Faces unsettle one another, and just as Cosmo, in The Killing of a Chinese Bookie, constantly seeks to ensure everyone stays on script, that the performance keeps rolling on, even when he's in the most dire of circumstances. In the context of this marathon, then, what I see in opening night is the way the theatrical space offers an artistic framework for Cassavetes to once again explore his broader thematic interests in the ways human interaction relies on a series of scripts, on a set of fixed behaviors and responses that, when abandoned, can leave one person vulnerable and leave everyone around that person feeling threatened and exposed, left to improvise their way through the situation. So guys, was opening night equally effective for you as a way to bring this Cassavetes marathon to a close? And what do you make of those elements in the film that the marathon didn't quite prepare you for? Like, oh, I don't know, the recurring phantom figure of a dead 17-year-old. And most importantly, will you be awarding Roland's Best Actress for this film, or for A Woman Under the Influence? Because let's be real, it's got to go to one of them. Thanks, guys.
Thank you again, Nathaniel. And we'll hear more from him because he once again, as he did with our Manelli Marathon last time, he shared his picks for the awards. It only made sense, Josh, that he's been such a key part of this marathon. We might as well hear his picks. And for the record, I'm going to say I'm ready to quit film spotting and just listen to Nathaniel's podcast full time. Okay. Can we That's do that? That's not why I mean, you're leaving next week, are you? No, no, it's not. Okay. Good. <laughs> Unfortunate timing, but I mean, <laughs> it could be why he really needs to stop making us look bad here. What he said about Cassavetes and how through this marathon, we've seen how, to quote Nathaniel, human interaction relies on a series of scripts. And when those are abandoned, they can leave one person vulnerable and leave everyone around that person feeling threatened and exposed. That's just dead on. And something you didn't hear Nathaniel say, Sam actually cut this part from the top of the voicemail. He tied this movie opening night back to the killing of a Chinese bookie and what I brought up last week and how we saw in that film in particular, but all the films in this marathon, Cassavetti's protagonist struggling against the confines of various institutions, still trying somehow to express their individuality, if they can even really tap into anymore who they are as an individual. And he rightfully points out how in opening night, we see Myrtle, General Roland's character, fighting against the entertainment industry and its restrictions on actresses, the expectations particularly placed on aging actresses. This play that she's in is all about an older woman who is confronting the youth that she no longer has. The director and her co-star, who we've mentioned, both Cassavetes and Ben Gazzara, place labels on her. And multiple times even, they openly deny her femininity. I love how they say, you're not a woman, you're a professional. And they actually mean that as a compliment. But If we think back to Rollins and A Woman Under the Influence, and I don't know how you can't think of those performances and those films in conjunction with each other, it's clear that it's so important for Cassavetes to explore what happens when women in particular don't play their prescribed roles. Here it just happens to literally be a role. It has a particularly disrupting effect on everyone around these women, mostly men, which I think is reflective on society as a whole. And we see Cassavetes here taking his concerns and his fascination with that aspect of performance that we've talked so much about to its most logical conclusion where we are actually watching an actress playing an actress. And these domestic dramas are no longer playing out within a living room, but a living room that's actually on a stage. So in some ways, this movie Sam and I were talking about this morning, it feels like the perfect culmination of Cassavetti's work and certainly of this marathon. How did you feel about it? Well, the tragedy of opening night, especially in relation to those, the relationships that Myrtle has with the men, for Mm -hmm. sure, is that she has no support here. She is totally left on her own. And this is a woman who's in crisis, maybe was already in some sort of crisis before taking on this role, but certainly the specifics of the role, which is about a woman in middle age, Mm -hmm. partly struggling with that reality. It just becomes too much for her to deal with, the way it echoes her own experiences. And you're right. What does she get from her director? Only things that are going to be helpful for the, he thinks are going to be helpful for the production, right? Yeah. What does she get from her co-star played by Cassavetes? Because he's a former lover and clearly did not go well or end well, something was off about it. He wants no part of her at all personally. He's not going to be hurt by her. Let himself be hurt. Exactly. And he's not even going to even open up any sort of risk-taking in the performance, in the production that might be necessary. He's pretty closed off. So she has nothing there. What's interesting to me is those elements, as I've said, are clearly there in terms of relationships with men. Um, But in a way, Myrtle has something of an opportunity with this production. This is not like, um, you know, she's being forced to play 
a grandmother when she's only like 43 in some Hollywood production. This is written by a woman. The playwright here is played by Joan Blondell, the play within the movie. Yes. It's written by a woman who says she's 60, does she say? Yeah, she's 60 or 65. So, you know, to an extent, she's being given an opportunity to enact something that she's dealing with in the present that another woman has dealt with already and is artistically expressing that. Now... Is the playwright, and I'm sorry, the her name is escaping me, but again, Joel Sarah Blondell. Good. There you go, Sarah Good. Is she entirely sympathetic to Myrtle? No, because no. at the end of the day, even though she tries to listen to her story and tries to comfort her here and there, at the end of the day, she's most protective of her play, mm-hmm. right? That's what matters to Absolutely. her, the integrity of the play. So this is another person who theoretically should mm-hmm. be able to give some sort of support to Myrtle and does not. And so this woman in crisis who is spiraling in front of everyone, um, there's nothing there for her. Yeah. There's no one there to, to, to help, to empathize with her. Um, I think the movie does, and I think sure. we do as an audience yes. for some particular filmmaking choices that are made that are some of the best things I think about opening night. Um, but among the other people we see, they're, they're not helping her at no, all. No, I think you make a great point. In fact, they're enabling the crisis or exploiting the crisis. I think you get the sense, right, that they will tap into anything they think they have to tap into in order to get her on the stage and to play this part. And we haven't even touched on the fact that the crisis is exacerbated by an event that happens very early in the film. We see the first night of the play or what I think is the first night of the play in these out-of-town previews ending. And we see a rush of people go to meet the actors, especially Myrtle, as she is the star, and a younger woman, I think she's supposed to be about 17, named Nancy. We don't know that yet, but she comes up and encounters Myrtle, and it's a very sort of haunting encounter between the two of them, and as she runs after the car and gets left behind, she's actually struck by another car. And this plays out in Pedro Almodovar's All About My Mother, the same kind of inciting incident, clearly inspired by this Cassavetes film. And I would talk about what is my favorite scene in this movie that involves this character, Nancy, but it's going to come up in our awards here in a little Mm. bit, but it's a great visual sequence. And that's another thing that I really tapped into with this film. One of my favorite choices Cassavetes makes is in a scene where we have heard now Myrtle finally get to express her reservations about this play, about the character she is playing, about how she is treated, how the character is treated. And she gets kind of a monologue moment where she is the only one on the stage. Maybe Cassavetes, Maurice's character is just off to the side, but the camera is completely focused on her and The other people, the director and the playwright and the producer are all in the audience. And Cassavetes shoots her in such a way that it's a low angle shot, which by its very nature does seem to imbue Myrtle with some power. We see her entire body up on the stage and she is in a position of authority in that moment. But it's also her at her most vulnerable. And by showing that low angle shot... It just heightens the artifice of the whole thing, how she's on stage and we see the falseness of the ceiling and the falseness of the set around her. And it's just one of these great Cassavetes kind of contradictions, this wonderfully nuanced moment where, as I said, she has total power and she's completely powerless, too. She's very alien to me. And I would pray that I could have something to say. That would make sense. So that I could make sense. I somehow, 
I seem to have lost the uh, the reality of of, of the uh, reality. <laughs> you know what the camera also does a lot in opening night is um, depict the audience. Yes as a threat, which is interesting considering we've talked so much about um, the way performance is an element of all mm-hmm. of his films, not not just the ones that involve a literal audience. But here, the camera is uh, a couple of times positioned in the crowd so that people's heads are almost in the way, and yeah. it's very claustrophobic. It's like you're sitting there, and you can feel the people around you. Um, how about that opening scene or that early scene you mentioned where the autograph seekers are pushing in on Myrtle, mm-hmm. and the camera's right there so that it's very... There's a rush, there's an intensity, there's more claustrophobia, and we sure. feel that as well. Um, and then, talk about visual elements. How about this ostentatious shot? I think it comes fairly early on. Once we understand that Myrtle's really in distress, we get the image of her, her angelic figure. It's in color, rising up onto the screen in front of. Mm. She's superimposed over a photograph, a black and white photograph of a crowd, some sort of, if it's not exactly a theater crowd, it's some sort of audience. And so she's rising up in opposition to this uh, dark, again, threatening Mm -hmm. crowd. And so there's a lot going on there, whether that's putting us a little bit in Myrtle's head, where at this point in her career, she sees the audience more as a threat, or maybe it's this particular play that makes her experience that. But Really interesting use of the camera work that does help us to empathize a little bit, I think, with what Myrtle is going through. Mm-hmm. And, boy, that shot of the the one I was talking about with the super imposition is really stands out. It makes opening night stand out among the realism we've seen in Cassavetti's other films. And so does that element you mentioned with Laura Johnson as this ghostly yeah. figure of the girl who was killed. Uh, I also saw her as a mixture. There's a reference once or twice where Myrtle references her own self yes. as a teenager. Yes. And so this figure, I think, stands in for both. For this, sure. This actual woman sure. who was killed. But also Myrtle as a young woman yes. that age, and they get into some arguments with each other, and all of a sudden you're in the realm of magical realism mm-hmm. slash horror, right. which I never would have expected from Cassidy. No, it's just, and like, I think it has a lot. I think it works very well, and it's just like Chinese Bookie last week, which we touched on. Maybe those weren't the best elements of that film, and maybe this supernatural element, if you will, isn't the best part of this film necessarily either, but it really is effective. And it is Cassavetti's telling this, this personal, very intimate story, despite the big ensemble, but using some of these genre elements and those scenes, especially when Nancy does actually actively attack Myrtle, it feels like something out of a horror film or a psychological thriller. You're absolutely right. Nathaniel also touched on, as we talk about the audience, the way Cassavetes chooses, and I definitely tapped into this early as well, the way he chooses to, for the most part, shoot all of the scenes of the play itself, any performance scenes on the stage, mm-hmm. for the most part, we see from this remove of the crowd. Yeah, we or at least it usually the starts there. Yeah, we'll start there and we'll occasionally cut in. But where we really get into the close-ups or get closer to the performers is in the rehearsal process. And for me, it gets at this idea that once that, production starts and that fourth wall goes up once there is an audience there there is this distance there is this remove and we as viewers are kept there as well and this whole idea that once that wall is there somehow we're all kind of protected the performers on the stage should know exactly what they're doing and it's going to follow a certain script and when it doesn't how that does change everything for the people 
in their real lives, but also for the people on stage. And then for us, as we're in this weird mix as viewers going, what actually is going on? And sometimes Cassavetes plays with that because we hear people talking about how much they love the play. Mm -hmm. They love what's happening, even though they're not actually on script at all. It's kind of a train wreck or maybe not kind of. It is a train wreck. And yet people are having their own kind of personal experience with it. And you mentioned it, her relationship to Nancy. I'm going to dive into it more with my choice for one of our awards. But there are a lot of second women in this play. In some ways, you could say the playwright is a second woman in terms of the consideration. It's the name of, of the play, of right? Myrtle. It's the name of the play. We have the second woman in the form of the wife of Ben Gazzara's director character who, oh, by the way, has had a second woman as well as he recently got out of an affair. Nancy is a second woman, but also in the way she does absolutely represent the younger version of Rollins. That's an additional woman being thrown into the mix. So there are all these blurred lines between the real world, what we see of it, and this fantasy world of the stage and the play. And did you notice that even her room, this hotel they're all staying at, she's the star, so she Mm -hmm. gets to go up to the loft. And I was always keenly aware, because of Cassavetti's camera and the way he shoots that space, of how much it felt just like a set or just another stage. So even when she's behind closed doors or someone else is up there and it's supposed to be a personal private moment and she is no longer on the stage performing, it still feels like she is. It's all hardwood floors. It's expansive. I think even if you look, the same red bar or a similar bar that's on the stage is up in her room. How could she find any relief up there? There is no separation between her as Myrtle Gordon and her as the character she's trying to play in these two worlds, the world on stage and off. Well, and the dialogue among all those different psyches that Rollins is having and lets us be a part of is why this performance is so striking, I think. And I want to point to one moment where we see those psyches kind of split apart. And it's in the first third, probably, when she's in the dressing room. Okay, don't do it. The mirrors? <laughs> don't do it. Okay. <laughs> can, that's I, it. Can, I, can I have you just hold off? Okay, we'll, we'll get into it then we with will. the awards. We will. Yeah, we definitely need to talk about that. Okay, so there is going to be more opening night talk here as we transition into our awards. We're calling them the Blue Hats, a name that I discussed on last week's show occurred to me after hearing Peter Falk talk about that wonderful blue hat he wears in A Woman Under the Influence, a gift that was given to him by John Cassavetes just before they started rolling, and it really did influence his entire performance. just seemed in keeping with this Marathon and Cassavetes approach to filmmaking. We have, as usual, five categories. Best Supporting Performance, Best Lead Performance, our favorite Cassavetes moment, which we'll get into more, and our overall favorite scene or moment from the marathon. Finally, we will name our best picture. As I said earlier, we're lucky to have Nathaniel Myers come back to help us with the awards, and he's going to get us started with his blue hat for Best Supporting Performance. For my Supporting Performance blue hat, I'm going with Lynn Carlin as Maria Forrest in Faces. Faces is, in many ways, a raucous film full of jarring editing and intense close-ups and booming with laughter and music and dancing. But when, about halfway through the movie, the focus all but turns to Carlin as Maria, with her intent gaze, assured smile, giddy laugh, and ultimately half-conscious cries of anguish, she gives the entire thing a weight and pathos that grounds the frenzied mood that characterizes much of the rest of the film. So for me, she's the very heart of this film, 
all the more impressive given this was supposedly her first time acting. Nathaniel giving his first blue hat to Lynn Carlin from the movie that kicked off this marathon faces a few of the candidates here for best supporting performance. Not only Lynn Carlin from faces, but Seymour Cassell is a memorable bit player in faces, along with Jenna Rollins, of course, as Jeannie. A woman under the influence, you could point to Peter Falk, almost a co-lead in that film. Seymour Cassell, again, in Killing of a Chinese Bookie. And then, as we touched on in opening night, you've got Joan Blondell, Ben Gazzara, and John Cassavetes, the filmmaker himself. Now, I would love to hear, Josh, that you've actually gone off the grid and picked Fred Draper, who's the guy who appears in... Is, is he in all of them? Yeah, he's in three of them. Okay. He's in three of the four films, and he appears as himself, Freddie Draper, mm-hmm. in Faces, but I'm guessing you did not do that. I did not, but I did enjoy seeing his face pop up each of yeah. those times. That was fun. Um, you know, I didn't think of Falk for this category. Okay. I, I think I agree. I would put him as a co-lead, really, in that film. I'm going to stick with Faces, and, you know... Let's be honest. It should be Jenna Rollins, even for faces. Probably. We got to spread the wealth here. She can't win every category. So my pick, I appreciate Nathaniel's. I think that's spot on. But I'm going to go with Seymour Cassell. Yeah. I just think, you know, well, first of all, he's got the dance moves in faces. That's true. Fantastic. Really enjoyed that. Um, Brought a lot of vibrancy to the movie, a special uh, timber of vibrancy compared to all the other mania that's going on and unpredictability as well. And I think he offers a key youthful perspective in that film, Um, you know, as opposed to the otherwise middle-aged characters who we mostly meet. He even offers some wisdom. Remember when he says to Lynn Carlin, Nathaniel's Mm -hmm. pick, to her distraught wife, cry, that's it, that's life, honey. I mean, that could be the tagline for this marathon. So that's why I'm going to go with Chet. Doesn't he at one point pretty much just say the answer to everything is getting laid? Probably. Some more wisdom from Chet. Yeah. Well, speaking of wisdom from Chet, actually, one of the lines, I mentioned it during our discussion of Faces, that helped unlock that film for me. And it turned out to help me unlock all the films in this marathon is that moment when he says to Lynn Carlin that nobody has the time to be vulnerable to each other anymore. So we just go on and he talks about the armor we put on like a shield certainly gets to that performance aspect, but I'm with Nathaniel. I went with Lynn Carlin for my blue hat here. She is the face that's most vivid in my mind when I think about that film, not Roland's even not John Marley who plays the lead, her husband. And I do think about her in a similar way to Gazzara, thinking about what you said about his performance in Killing of a Chinese Book, you said he's cool and calm, but there's that panic that's underneath. Carlin's Maria isn't interested in style, but there is this sense of stability she's always trying to exude and maintain. And I think about her face when Marley says they should get a divorce when they're at the dinner table and how that blindsides her. And when she tells Cassell, as they're about to have sex, that she doesn't like the lights on. He's completely naked. She's in her pajamas, her her mother pajamas. And she says she doesn't like the lights on. And she says it so tenderly. She's so vulnerable in that moment. I think she is the heart of that movie because Carlin makes her the most recognizable and most accessible character. Let's get to lead performance. And really, the only question here should be, which performance will it be for? Nathaniel, he's got a pithy take on best lead performance. The best lead performer is Jenna Rollins in A Woman Under the Influence. Josh, that's all I have to say, and I'm sorry. 
No apologies necessary, Nathaniel. I mean, you made the wrong pick, but uh, no, I, I can't. My complaint, it wasn't even a complaint, but my question about Woman Under the Influence really wasn't uh, about the performance itself. I mean, Rollins, she's a force to be reckoned with in that film. It, it was absolutely more about, uh, you know, the way it was presented by the movie. So obviously that would be a good way to go with Jenna Rollins in A Woman Under the Influence. I think what I like about Opening Night that's where I'm going, opening night, is the way it takes us deep inside Myrtle's distress. We really get in there. And that helps temper any frustration over her erratic behavior. There's another level of understanding. There's another level of empathy that I found in that performance. And again, it has a lot to do with how opening night and Cassavetes as a director presents her and the opportunities it gives her. This is where I know I'm going to steal your thunder again, but I have to talk about that mirror scene and the moment backstage. (laughs) Well, I'll leave something for you to say. But the moment backstage where she comes apart. This is where the hard drinking isn't working anymore. This is where she hasn't, she has to admit she has not found a way into this play because it's hitting too close to home. She stares in the mirror and my goodness, her face changes so that you're almost looking at two different people. Yes. And at the same time, the filmmaking has so much to do with the effect of Everything to do. It is such yeah. a performance moment, but is also in the editing, the blurry close-ups we get, a yep. shot of her eye, okay. a shot of her lips. Yep. Uh, Keep going. Great. <laughs> I'm going to save you. I'm going to save you. You know, you can talk about that quick insert shot of the younger woman. <laughs> okay, great. Okay? I won't Thanks. say anything about that. Let me also just briefly talk about, we mentioned this in the opening night review, but the way Myrtle is deconstructing the play's material live on stage, Mm -hmm. this is where you get, you know, the Rollins we also saw in A Woman Under the Influence, where she's erratic, but also having an argument with herself, having an argument with her character, (laughs) and having an argument with the audience. I guess you could throw in her co-stars there at the same time. Yeah, totally. All of this is, she's juggling all of this at the same time. It's where it clarified for me, Mm -hmm. watching opening night, that Rollins is, she's like Brando. I mean, the way that she has, I'll go back to that word, unpredictability. It's that sense of live theater where you think things could go in any direction mm-hmm. at any moment. She is fully in control, but there's a rawness to it. I don't think I've seen another actor do this sort of thing as well as Brando. I think Rollins and Brando do that both together amazingly well. I think that's really well said. I'm going to surprise you and everyone else here when I point out that Nathaniel's not wrong. Her performance as Mabel in A Woman Under the Influence is probably the right answer and probably what should be my answer. But... I agree with you about her performance as Myrtle, and I am going with opening night for best lead performance here. And I'm just going to say a watered-down version of what you said, which is that I think in the way Rollins plays Myrtle, she shows the same range with the character and the way she can absolutely dominate a scene or be quiet and fragile and in some moments almost invisible. But there's also more time in between. There's more space. There is less erratic behavior. And I think that perhaps because of the layers of performance that are at work here, maybe we do empathize with the character a little bit more. As you said, we've got the way she's battling with her character, the way she's battling with herself, the way she's battling with her younger self in the form of Nancy. And of course, everyone else that you mentioned, her co-stars and everyone who's pushing her to just do this play and do it the way they want her to. There are then through those layers, I think, maybe more layers to her performance. So that's what I'm sticking with, though. Right after I made this choice and jotted down a few notes, 
I did end up going to a woman under the influence for some other research for these awards mm-hmm. and started watching scenes and thought, I'm an idiot. <laughs> well, hey, I thought you were going to say Ben Gazzara in The Killing of a Chinese no, Bookie. No, That wouldn't have been too bad No, either. it's not He's bad, great. but you got to go Jenna Rollins. You do. You just really have to. Okay, now our third category is Cassavetti's Moment. I think we've been doing this with most of our marathons recently. We did have a Manelli moment, and we can define that however we choose to. It started with you, I think, suggesting maybe how we define that is it's a harsh truth moment. There's certainly a lot of that in these movies. Then I suggested, well, maybe kind of fitting right in with that, in those moments of harsh truth, they're also really cringy sometimes. There are elements in Cassavetti's films that make you uncomfortable watching them. So I kind of wanted to go that route. And that's when Sam jumped in and said, well, maybe just calling it this umbrella Cassavetti's moment is best. And Sam, as usual, is right. But our friend Nathaniel went with the cringe factor for his choice. For my Cassavetti's moment, I really wanted to go with a film where we grappled most with what characterizes a Cassavetti's film. And that's The Killing of a Chinese Bookie, for which there are any number of possibilities. But if what you guys are really asking about is what was the most cringeworthy moment or harshest truth moment, well, I'll pick something from a film I haven't otherwise mentioned, Opening Night. The moment I'm thinking about is when Maurice slaps Myrtle to the ground on stage during their performance, and Myrtle just stays down, leaving Maurice and us totally uncertain how to read the situation and what to do about it. I'm not sure it's the most cringeworthy moment, but it does seem to be the perfect summation of one of Cassavetti's harshest truths, which is that in a world of other people, each with their own lives and motivations and struggles, how we're supposed to deal with those others isn't always clear. A great choice there by Nathaniel. One of the standout scenes, I agree, in opening night, this moment where I'm not sure we're supposed to believe Maurice actually does slap Myrtle. He says he didn't do it, but the way she responds is as if he just hauled off and slugged her. And then she lays there on the ground and is yelling, and there's a cringe element to it, but there is also the fact that we sympathize with her so much because we know what her character is going through in struggling with this performance. It works on multiple levels, which is what we expect from Cassavetes. Yeah, I think that might be one of the, if it's not the first, it's one of the early moments where she just takes the production completely off the tracks, Yes, right? And in a way, what's interesting about that is even though she's exceedingly vulnerable in that moment, she's also wrested control. So just, you know, another, another great thing about that performance. All right, so my Cassavetes moment is a harsh truth that you also cringe at because you feel really bad for Cosmo during this sequence in The Killing of a Chinese Bookie. Nathaniel, in one of his introductions, pulled it out and talked about it. Actually, it's the phone call. When he's out to make this hit mm. that he's been I forced if this into, would come up. Um, he pauses yeah. in the midst of probably the yeah. most important night of his life to call back to the strip club and make sure that the show is going on as it should be and the bartender, who's worked there for years, can't even tell him what number mm-hmm. they're performing. Now, because, Josh, they're not strippers. They're performers. Uh, the, yeah, it's um, – what did I call it? Like Andy Kaufman performance art slash stripping. Pretty much. That's Okay, that's what it was. But yeah, just the fact that Cosmo has to come to the realization, uh, the harsh truth that he's the only guy – who really thinks there's any art going on here. He's invested so much into this, and his own bartender can't tell one number apart from the other. Yep. It's funny, it's, um, sad. it's cringeworthy, yeah. and it's sad. Great, great choice. I'm going with a moment 
after I suggested maybe going down the cringe path, I didn't ultimately land on one that I find that cringy. But it is a moment of truth, and it is a moment of revelation. And there is something a little bit uncomfortable about it, certainly. And it's the moment in A Woman Under the Influence when Mabel has come back from being away, where she's being treated, and Peter Falk's Nick has kicked everyone out and just has it down to the immediate family and a little bit of extended family. And they're sitting at the table, and Mabel and Nick are right by each other, and she's making conversation. She's making small talk. She's asking the men at the table how they're doing. She says to her kids, hello, bananas. And then just as this very quick aside, she turns to Nick and says, how am I doing? Okay. Mm. That's it for me because that's where the truth comes out because the performance is acknowledged. She is trying to do everything the right way. And in that moment, we might actually believe that she really means it and that she's asking those questions because she's changed and she understands how to make the small talk or she is genuinely interested in how the people at the table are doing. But when she turns and says, how am I doing okay? Any sense of her now being okay or being better, that illusion is completely shattered because she has revealed that it's all an act. Yeah. It is in that moment all an act. And in a way, it's the single most devastating line in the movie because you know that while she is not better, she is trying so hard. And that, that effort by Mabel is what makes her such a heartbreaking character. This was hard for me because we're talking about the best Cassavetes moment. In a lot of ways, you could argue that whatever defines your favorite Cassavetes moment maybe should define your overall favorite Cassavetes marathon scene. So we're going to see how you approached it, Josh. But first, let's hear from Nathaniel. For my choice of scene, I'm going with the spaghetti breakfast that Mabel serves Nick and his co-workers in A Woman Under the Influence. It's the scene that for me is most crushing, and a film full of crushing moments, where I see Mabel working at her absolute hardest to perform a role that she just can't seem to fully inhabit, where she can't quite figure out what's the suitable behavior for the situation that she's in with the people that she's with. When the scene finally erupts, what's left in its wake is Mabel with her silent gestures and expressive faces that seem at once a parody of her husband and a personal expression of anger, loss, and confusion. It's also just Roland's at her most staggering, and it's a scene that will stay with me long into the future. So perfect follow-up, obviously, to my last choice for Cassavetti's moment, and a tough one to argue with because it was the first one I considered. When you think about scenes that were so memorable and uncomfortable to sit through, that spaghetti breakfast scene, and in particular that moment when Nick says to her, get your ass down, when he loses it after trying on his own, in his own way, to accommodate her, when he finally has to lash out and everyone in the room, and we sort of with them in that room as observers, have to witness that hostile behavior, you want to get out of there as fast as you can. You maybe want to stop watching as fast as you can. So I think that's a great choice from Nathaniel. What did you go with? Well, mine also involves uh, an unpleasant moment for Jenna Rollins. I think there's a lot of those in this marathon. It actually comes from Faces, though, and I'm calling it Jeannie's Song. So this is where she's playing the escort who at this point is involved with John Marley. And it's a morning after scene. She's cleaning up this breakfast she has made for him that he's insulted. And she's trying to sing away 
the tear that snuck out on her face and is smudging her mascara. I uh, talked about this when we reviewed Faces, but I love how the camera catches it, even though she's trying to hide it and make sure that we do see it in close-up. Um, and this whole scene is so devastating because we do get this cut back to Dickie, right when she's in this moment of distress, the Marley character, and he's getting dressed and reciting this silly poem that they both found so funny last night when they came home. Um, and you just, it's so clear in the air that the moment has long passed. He's trying to grasp that again, and it's its just over. So yeah, this is probably another harsh truth moment. It's another seemingly improvised moment. You know, it's hard to tell what's planned and what's not here. Um, but really, at bottom as well, just another uh, mesmerizing moment of performance yeah. from Rollins. No, it is a great choice. My choice is the scene that you have already discussed in some detail, Josh, what I'm calling (laughs) touching Nancy's hand Mm. in opening night. It's actually the scene right after Nathaniel's Cassavetti's moment from opening night. We've had the slap. We've had the discussion on stage about her conflict playing the character and all the talk about her struggle with age and how the play seems to be lacking hope. The character as written is lacking hope. And then she goes back to the dressing room and she does see Nancy. And I meant to go back and try to rewatch this today and didn't have time. It may be the first time where she slash we see Nancy. I'm pretty sure it is. Okay, so it's the first time we see this ghost, this kind of apparition. And it's a split second. And it really is. And it's really astonishing, everything about this about two-minute scene. And I chose it because with Cassavetes, you immediately think of dialogue. You think of characters constantly expressing what ever they're feeling or they're singing or shouting or doing anything they can to stop them from expressing what they're actually feeling. And this marathon repeatedly showed me how good Cassavetes was with the camera, how much he considered camera placement and shot selection and movement and when to cut versus allowing a scene to play out in real time. And this is a scene where for two minutes there is no dialogue, at least no audible dialogue. And you touched on a few of the elements. It's all visual where he cuts between the axis, kind of the axis of action that disorients us a little bit. Also, from one of the angles, we twice see... Roland's as a blurred image, mm-hmm. out of focus, actually. And then he'll cut back across that image, and he does this wonderful match action cut where her head is going up, and he cuts just as her head in another shot from another angle is going down. And it stretches out the whole sense of time and disorientation in the scene overall. And then that moment of performance by Roland's where on a cut, we get the awareness on her face of a presence now being in the space. She turns her head in profile and we have this mirror image of her and there's a mirror in front of them too. Of course it's a dressing room, but just in the foreground, we recognize that there's blonde hair in the shot, blonde hair that's laying exactly like Roland's hair is laying. And in that moment, I was sure that that was based on what we had just seen in this breakdown moment that had to be a person we were probably never going to see, but a representation of Roland's younger self. Right. In that moment, she was confronting her younger self. And then we recognize that in a way she is, but it's Nancy. That's the younger version of herself that she is seeing. And then, of course, that moment where their hands actually mirror each other and reach out for each other. And the cutting between the extreme close-up of going from Myrtle's eyes and the smiles on Nancy's face, it's, it's a moment where they both seem to be genuinely comforting each other, which I found quite touching, but just as filmmaking, 
it's an amazing two minutes. Yeah, it absolutely is. And there's so much going on there, as you described. But I do love the restraint shown in that shot of Nancy. You know, he doesn't overplay that. No. It's almost like a little hint. It throws us off as well. Um, and we really don't find out more for a little bit further into the film. So I, I like that choice as well. I think that choice overall speaks to why we both felt that the Nancy element is handled well in the movie. Even when we first meet her, we barely see her. The way the mm-hmm. camera always seems to be jostled a little bit. Yeah. It's always showing just the back of her or only a it's part of her. And yeah, and it's raining. Exactly. Okay. That brings us to our favorite picture from the marathon. What was the best film of the John Cassavetes Marathon? The blue hat for Nathaniel Myers goes to... Honestly, I'm most excited to see where you two land on this, because in a normal world where up is up and down is down, the clear winner would be, I think, a woman under the influence. And honestly, that's where I'm going to go, even though I think there's a strong case to be made for Faces as well. Faces has ambition, technical bravura, and a stellar ensemble, but so too does a woman under the influence, which we might also say has a touch more subtlety and command in the camera work, and a greater emotional wallop by way of Roland's performance. And was it Sam on Letterboxd who mentioned the impressive use of music in the film? In any case, I suspect there's some debate here to be had, so I'm excited to hear you guys get to it. Thanks for another great marathon, guys. Thank you for participating again, Nathaniel. We will hear more from you as we get to our next marathon here in maybe about four to five weeks. So a woman under the influence, his choice. I'm going to guess it was opening night that was your choice. You know, as we're going through these awards, it sounds to myself like I should say opening night as well. But you're going faces. Yeah, I'm going with Nathaniel's runner-up. It is faces for me. And I think, you know, we've talked a little bit about recurring themes that we've been able to stitch together. And faces really set the tone for me um, for one that I've latched onto, this desperate search for a fountain of youth. I mean, it's all over opening night, obviously. It's, It's, you know, the surface theme, but just this idea of raging against age in general and mortality as well, um, I think, you know, maybe is least evident in The Killing of a Chinese Bookie, but it's also very much there, actually, when you think about Cosmo and time totally. passing him by, yes. right? The, the era passing him and by. And the young so, women, how he has to have three of them on his arm yeah. to impress people. And yeah. So, you know, we've got these middle-aged boozers in faces, and then we've got Cosmo having time pass him by. We've got Myrtle wrestling with aging both artistically and personally in opening night. Um, maybe it's Woman Under the Influence where it's not quite as much at the forefront, but I'm sure you could find hints of it there as well. And I, I just, the vitality of faces as well kind of um, shocked me and, and jostled me. And it was sort of, uh, it was something I hadn't really seen before and made me understand why Cassavetes huh. has had such an influence. Um, maybe it was the black and white, the camera work, the the controlled chaos of it all. I think Faces was the most aesthetically interesting to me, huh. even though we just spent time breaking yeah. down that scene from opening night. I go back to how the handheld camera captures that sure. itchiness sure. the movie had and the graininess of the black mm-hmm. and white, uh, the roughness. I do think moving forward, you know, I'll hopefully see more Cassavetti's films. But right now when his name comes up, I'll probably think of Faces first. Okay. So I use similar logic I'll get to in a moment. But I think that's an inspired choice. I'm not shocked. I really liked Faces as well. So I'm not going to argue with you, though I do think for me, A Woman Under the Influence certainly and even Opening Night are the film's 
that Faces is leading up to. Faces feels like the stepping yeah, stone that's fair. for those two movies. And this really was a close battle for me with opening night, but ultimately I'm with Nathaniel again. It's a woman under the influence, and there's two reasons why. There's two things that gave woman the edge for me. One is the endings of the two films. I think everything about Mabel's debacle of a return through that kind of pseudo-reconciliation we see, this performance scene again of domestic tranquility that feels... Like a performance, it feels a little bit false, like something is off, but also achingly real in the way Falk and Rollins play it. I think their love for each other, their genuine affection for each other, and their their desire to want to make this work comes through and overrides the fact that it's probably impossible. I think that's a more satisfying conclusion, ultimately, than the performance scene we get at the end of opening night. Mm-hmm. For me, the other reason I give A Woman Under the Influence the advantage is what you were alluding to with your choice— I think it's more essential Cassavetes. If someone came to me and said, I need to understand John Cassavetes and his work, but I can only watch one film, the choice for me is a woman under the influence, even if it means, and maybe because it means, they might not choose to watch another Cassavetes film if they had the choice after sitting through a woman under the influence. That's part of the experience of it. Yeah, that makes sense. And I I would actually think about faces in the same way, too, that um, you get that full sense of what his style and his interests and, honestly, what his actors can do within that environment. If you need to revisit any part of the Cassavetes Marathon or check out our previous marathons, you can do that at filmspotting.net slash marathons. The next marathon, as I said, is coming soon. We're going to get to four, maybe five films from Stanley Donnan. We expect that to come in mid-April. We did say last week that we weren't sure about the pronunciation. This is what I love about every pronunciation question of all time. First bit of feedback we get from someone who I really trust and from someone who said, I was taught by a film professor who knew him personally, and he always said, Stanley Donnan which is the way I've always said it. Mm-hmm. And then a day later, an email comes through with a recommendation for the marathon saying very clearly, oh, no, it's like Donut. It's Stanley Donan. Well, okay, there's thanks, still guys. time for Dunan. <laughs> Somebody send in that Dunan email. Yeah, exactly. Let's see <laughs> how many variations we can get. Your great uncle worked for him. It's for now, Dunan. For now, we're going with Stanley Donnan. And as we've said, we expect actually the one to follow that, even though it may not follow it until about a year from now, we're going to do Marlena Dietrich and Joseph von Sternberg. All that information, again, is at filmspotting.net slash marathons. And Josh, that is our show. Over at the website, you can also find 14 years of reviews, interviews, and top fives in the show archives. And that's the place to vote in Film Spotting Madness. The best of 2000s edition is down to the Elite Eight. Also, if you haven't already, please do check out our sister podcast, The Next Picture Show. It's available wherever you listen to podcasts. If you want a Film Spotting t-shirt or any other merch, you can visit filmspotting.net slash shop. And if you want to connect with us on Facebook or on Twitter, Adam is at Film Spotting. I'm at Larson on Film. And to get that weekly Film Spotting newsletter, subscribe at filmspotting.net slash Adam Slash newsletter. You got it. Okay. Out in wide release. Us is the big release, and we do heartily recommend you see Jordan Peele's latest out in limited release, opening here in Chicago, The Hummingbird Project, The Mustang, and The Highwaymen, Kevin Costner and Woody Harrelson as the Texas Rangers who brought down Bonnie and Clyde. You can also see that on Netflix. Next week, I'm going to be off, but Josh will be here along with the great Michael Phillips from the Chicago Tribune. They're going to review Tim Burton's Dumbo and share their top five movie circus acts. Some animals might be involved. (laughs) 
<laughs> Finally, Michael and Josh will share the final four of Film Spotting Madness. You will not want to miss that. Film Spotting is produced by Golden Joe Dassault and Sam Van Hogren. Without Sam and Golden Joe, this show wouldn't go. Our production assistant is Andy Mitchell. Thanks also to Candace Griffiths and the listeners of the Film Spotting Advisory Board. And special thanks to everyone at WBEZ Chicago. More information is available at WBEZ.org. Our music this week is from Karen O. and Danger Mouse. Comes from the album Lux Prima. More information is at KarenOMusic.com. For Film Spotting, I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. Thanks for listening. This conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye. Film Spotting is listener supported. Join the Film Spotting family at filmspottingfamily.com and get access to ad free episodes, monthly bonus shows, our weekly newsletter, and for the first time, all in one place, the entire Film Spotting archive going back to 2005. That's at filmspottingfamily.com.